Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to episode number 82 of the DBR podcast. I am hosting for you this week. I am Jason Evans. By the way, I just want to give you five words to remember. We'll come back to these in the middle of the podcast. Got to be a hero. Remember those words. Got to be a hero. I will tell you what they mean a little later on. But before I explain that to you, we have to talk a little bit about some football, a little bit about some basketball. And to do that, I'm joined by my two partners in crime in Washington, D.C., Donald Wine. Hey, what's going on, fellas? Not much, not much at all, except for uh, we have a pretty good football team that we're, we've got here. And out in Colorado, Sam Klein. How you doing, Sam? Um. My Washington Nationals clinched the National League East on Sunday, and I am very happy about that, even though they play in a trash division. Hey, my Atlanta Braves are part of that trash division. That they are. <laughs> I will see both your teams play tomorrow here in D.C. Ooh, very exciting. <laughs> I like it. Very nice. Very nice. There's huge stakes in, in that game. <laughs> the battle for whatever place. That's right. <laughs> Battle for battle for a place that does not matter, but uh, places that do matter it, uh, is where the Duke football team is going. Um, they are now two and zero after uh, whooping, and I mean whooping Northwestern forty-one to seventeen. And it's not often you get to say this on a forty-one to seventeen game. It wasn't as close as the score indicates. Uh, Duke outgained Northwestern five hundred and thirty-eight yards to one hundred and ninety-one which basically means the Duke offense did whatever it wanted and the Duke defense did whatever it wanted. Uh, Duke QB Daniel Jones rushed for 100-plus yards, threw for 300-plus yards. That is only the second time in history, and that's only the second time in Duke's history that they've had a QB throw for 100, throw for 300 and run for 100. TJ Roming had 12 catches. Uh, the defense was spectacular, four sacks, two interceptions. I, I'm, I'm saying too much because I want, I'm hosting, so you guys are the ones in charge of saying stuff. So I'm going to go first to Donald. Donald, I want you to talk mostly about the offense for me. What did you see? What did what thrilled you? How did Duke get 41 points with ease against a legit BCS opponent in Northwestern? Well, you alluded to it. I mean, the first thing is to, you know, to score, you have to, you know, advance the ball. And we did that basically at will. Uh, a couple of stats that you didn't point out. You pointed out the 538 total yards. We had 34 first downs, which is a remarkable number for any game against any opponent. 34 first downs is a lot. 15 of 22 on third down conversions, which means even if we were getting to, you know, third and long, third and short, we were converting. Uh, we had 41 minutes possession, and the two turnovers that we had in the game uh, was the interception on the first possession of the game and then a fumble late in the first half that really didn't, you know, help. I mean, it didn't really affect the game when you look at it as a whole. One thing that I wanted to point out on offense uh, before we get to some of the other stats, after you know, you know, Northwestern kind of had a little bit of momentum in the first quarter. They, as I mentioned, they had the interception on the first possession of the game for us. Uh, we also took the ball after they got a field goal, drove the ball the length of the field, and they intercepted the ball again. But they also had a targeting penalty on that play, and after that targeting penalty, that's where I think the momentum shifted and Duke took off from there. Uh, it was great to see Duke punch in the, you know, punch it into the end zone. Daniel Jones had a, a really good run to uh, score the touchdown on that possession. And then after that, it almost feel, felt like the team could do anything they wanted. You know, uh, Daniel Jones had 108 yards on the ground in two touchdowns. He ran the ball very hard and extremely well. Sean Wilson had 14 carries for 58 yards. So 
you know, the rushing yards, they had 233 rushing yards, which is more rushing yards than Northwestern had total yards. So that's a really good sign when you have your rushing game really going well, that fuels everything else. Daniel Jones was zipping the ball. I thought he was making great throws. He was making great decisions with the ball for the most part, uh, including that uh, beauty of a bomb to uh, Chris Taylor in the second quarter for that long touchdown. It was That's a play when you see a guy that wide open, you know that play was executed with to perfection. Uh, and everyone on that play did their job. So that was really good to see. We saw a lot of that, uh, especially on third down when we needed a play to be made. The plays were made, and, and they're very calm, v- executing everything with poise and showed excellent leadership. I thought uh, a lot of the guys on the team showed excellent leadership. Daniel Jones spread the ball around, too. He had 10 guys making a catch in the game. Uh, I, I'm even counting Sean Wilson because I guess Sean Wilson's technically was for a loss. But to, to spread the ball around, to have that many guys be – uh, involved in the offense is a really good thing to have. And you can see everyone kind of working together, leading the team down the field. If one person's on the field, the other guys are are cheering them on. Would they have to step up off the bench? Those guys were making great plays too. So credit to the offense, credit to the coaching staff uh, for making great plays and executing them uh, at will and, and really making Northwestern look like uh, a team that should not have been on the field with Duke. Um, that is a a very tall task to do that against a power five opponent uh, in, you know, to do that against Northwestern was a really good sign. Um, stretching the defense and taking advantage of the momentum. They literally just grabbed it. Uh, there was, you know, I, and I'm alluding to the defense, you know, defense, there's times where the offense would make plays and sometimes the defense would take the play uh, and literally just take the, rip the ball away from Northwestern and run with it. So with that, I'll turn it to Sam. Sam, what did you see on defense? Cause from my vantage point, I thought the defense had a hell of an afternoon. Yeah, it was it was really nice. I, I did want to add, kind of before I dive into the defense, um, a couple a couple notes on on the offense. I I did see over the weekend. I think um, uh, SB Nation's Bill Connolly um, he puts out a lot of stats, and Adam Rowe over at the Devil's Den noted that um, I think it was Adam Rowe noted that uh, Duke was the only um, of the uh, BCS teams this weekend or whatever, whatever we call the the top level of competition in college football was the only one of those teams that ran a hundred plays um, over this weekend, which was pretty cool. Um, so the offense was, was great. They stayed on the field. They moved the ball really well, as Donald said. Um, I think the other th- interesting thing to look at uh, as far as kind of the big picture on the offense is that um, coach Cutcliffe really seems to trust Daniel Jones um, and in not kind of the game manager way that that he trusted Thomas Sirk, I think that Jones is given a lot more um, leeway to decide who to throw to. He makes a lot more checks, and he throws the ball uh, to a lot of different receivers, and he is smart about when to run. You know, it's one thing to have a mobile quarterback. It's another thing to be that mobile quarterback and and know the moment when the play is breaking down and you have that that. Um, that window to be able to run. I really like watching Jones's decision-making because um, he, he can really extend plays and it's, and he also doesn't get to a point like, you know, three or four seconds into the play where he has made two checks and decides to run. He, he looks at every guy and, and, and maintains the ability to throw deep into plays. Um, and that might be a commentary on Northwestern's defense, but I'm really enjoying that progression from him. And I think that, it, maybe it didn't shock Northwestern's coaching staff so much, but I would bet that sort of the average Northwestern fan who's watching this game probably was surprised at how much Jones has progressed from 
you know, early last year when he was recently installed as the starter to early this year, uh, he looks really mature on offense. Uh, now, okay, so moving, so Sam, yeah, so we said yeah. that Donald was going to talk about the offense. You were going to talk about the All right. defense. All right, and dude, the defense was the player of the game. So, so let me let me tell you about the defense. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna move to the defense. <laughs> um, I just I just feel like I needed to give Daniel Jones a little bit more juice. Um, the defense was amazing. The defense had there were two stretches um that that i would like to highlight um in the second quarter the um the duke defense forced uh a number of um it was so the the first quarter ended with northwestern punting duke scored a touchdown northwestern fumbled duke scored another touchdown northwestern punted on a three and out and clayton thor the last useful play of that drive was clayton thorson the quarterback for northwestern getting sacked um, by defensive tackle Mike Ramsey, who had a heck of a game, uh, was disrupting everything. Another punt. Duke punted. There was kind of a back and forth. Duke, uh, Northwestern actually scored another touchdown in the second quarter, but I thought that that the whole sequence, like for the first two thirds, the first like ten minutes or so of that second quarter, was really essential for Duke because they scored a couple times and and had a couple of really quick Northwestern drives, um, forced the Northwestern defense back on the field, who clearly were starting to look tired even as early as midway through the second quarter. Looking into the second half, where it kind of turned into a blowout, um, Northwestern only had, they only had one drive where they ran more than five plays um, in the second half, and that was the last drive when all the backups were in and their backup quarterback was in, um, and they did score a touchdown late, and as Jason said, final score was probably not as close as the game would have indicated. Um, I wanted to highlight a couple other guys on the defense. Uh, so I mentioned Mike Ramsey, our defensive tackle, who was really spectacular up front. Um, in the linebacker core, both Ben Humphreys and Joe Giles Harris had excellent games, um, a couple tackles for loss, and made a lot of big stops around the line of scrimmage. It seemed like every time Northwestern was maybe about to break off a big play, one of those guys kind of appeared and and stopped it, and and the defense was gang-tackling around those guys really well. Um, two interceptions by Mark Gilbert, which was, which were really fantastic. Um, kind of out of nowhere, he, he wasn't much of a factor for the defense last year. And then the other wait, defensive, wait, wait, back, wait, 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 the two wait, interceptions wait. by Gilbert. I, I swear on both those plays, Gilbert was the targeted guy. Like literally the oh, pass yeah. went directly to him both times. It was hysterical. Yeah. Totally, totally him making those plays. And he had, he had the one. Um, I think the first one he had where he kind of cut under the receiver and, and returned it. Um, that was, that was outstanding. Um, and, and you're right, Jason, it did, it did seem like he was in the best position to catch those balls. Um, so really well done by him. And then the other defensive back I thought who had a great day, um, uh, was Alonzo Saxton who had, uh, led the team in sacks from the safety position or not in sacks and tackles rather from the safety position, um, was kind of all over the place breaking up breaking up plays um we talked about in the preview how and, and by the way saxon saxon had the had the strip he was the guy who ripped the ball away yeah. and had the strip yeah, fumble the, recovery, yeah. which right the which strip fumble recovery. i mean it goes as a fumble it's a fumble recovery but it wasn't a fumble by any stretch of the imagination it was saxon said i want that ball i'm taking it away from you yeah and 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 did it like a man, I would say. <laughs> he literally sort took of, the ball yeah. and handed it in, in like he went to the ground and got up and the ref like kind of blew the ball dead as if to say, Okay, it's the first down and then 
<laughs> Saxton got up and was just like, this ball is yours now. I don't need it. And like, yeah, yeah. field. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, when we talked in the preview about Northwestern's offense, which last year really um, was pretty good. Um, we highlighted specifically their quarterback, Clayton Thorson, who, you know, is big guy. He's not especially mobile, um, but he makes a lot of good throws. Duke held him to 11 for 29 passing um, only threw for 120 yards on the day. And then um, we also talked about Justin Jackson, their star running back. He rushed seven times for 18 yards. So um, not the best day for Northwestern's uh, Northwestern's star offensive players in total. Um, Northwestern, the Wildcats. Yeah. I was going to say they only average one yard per carry one yard per carry that, that, we crushed them. Our our line and our linebackers won that game. Uh, that's and, 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 and that's when I say that it seemed like it seemed like every play they they were making stops at the line of scrimmage. And and there you go. That's the that's the stat to back it up. If you remove um, if you remove Thorson's, I'm looking at the ESPN version of the stats. If you remove Thorson's rushes, um, which accounted for negative forty yards, I assume those are all the sacks. Um, Northwestern only rushed for sixty two yards. Uh, and and did give the ball to a lot of different guys. So it's not like it's not like they were trying one game plan. Like I said, Jackson only only got seven carries. Um, so Northwestern was trying a lot of different things, and Duke just stopped them every time. I think that the most important stat and the one that I think football commentators like to harp on um, is that Northwestern was only one for ten on third down for the day, and it seemed like you know I, I talked about Ramsey uh, and Giles Harris. Um, and and Humphreys, it seemed like every time there was a key third down, and and Northwestern had a few opportunities. Those guys were were right there to stop the play, and um, and like Jason said, it wasn't as close as it seemed because they got that touchdown late. Northwestern couldn't really get much of anything going on offense, uh, and, and and honestly, the thing that probably kept them in the game a little more was that their punting was so good they kept having bad field position to start drives. Oh my God, they're punting. Having was three awesome. and outs. And then they kept punting to like within, like inside the 20 yard line um, to the other side of the field. So it seemed like every Duke drive they had to, they were going to have to march like 80 yards to, to get a touchdown. And, and to the offense's credit, they did that. But um, you know, if Northwestern didn't have such a good punter and if Duke's, if Duke's punting, honestly, wasn't it, it wasn't so great. Um, cause Duke's punting is, was not the strength on the, on the day. Um, you know, this could have been an even more lopsided affair and, and on the subject of special teams, I would just finally note that, um, Austin Parker did have a great day, uh, uh, with his field goals and his extra points, um, didn't miss any of them. So that was really great. Uh, especially given the up and down season, oh, mostly down dude. season that he had last year. Dude, <laughs> you, you stole. You stole my, I, I was going to say there was no drama points and wasn't that nice to see. It was, it was really nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, by the way, cut, cut clip says that Austin Parker is capable of kicking 50 plus yard field goals, but Cutcliffe hates taking long field goals. He doesn't like attempting them. Um, so that's why we, you know, don't take a lot of long ones, but he says that Parker's got plenty of foot for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, um, I, I'm not going to tell you a lot about what I saw in football practice when I was with the team, um, but a lot of guys can do that. Uh, the matter of whether or not they can do it in a game is entirely different. So uh, I will, yeah. I will believe yeah. that 
I will believe that when I see it. Um, but there are plenty of dudes who are on, I, assuming that the kicking talent has not changed dramatically since 2011, there are plenty of guys on the bench who can kick 40 and 50 yard field goals. Um, they just can't necessarily do it under pressure. And, and we've even seen, um, you know, going back to, to my time, um, how volatile the kicking game can be. Cause one year Will Snyder one was like an all American kicker. And the next year he like was missing 25 and 30 yarders regularly. So yeah, uh, yeah. it's a challenge. I, I think that, I think the point of what Cutcliffe was saying about not wanting to take 50 yarders is that you're only getting three points. The offense is pretty good as it is. And, and you don't want to give up that bad field position to the other team. Cause if you miss that 50 yarder, then all of a sudden, you know, the opponent gets the ball like at the at like the 35 or 40 yard line as opposed to pushing him back and and on kickoffs duke was excellent at at stuffing runs i can't believe that northwestern kept running the ball out of the end zone because duke kept ending their their runbacks at the 15 or 20 yard line i mean there's so, a lot that there's a lot that even like were you know it was weird because you could see the ball like we were deliberately kicking the ball straight up in the air so that it would land like right at like one yard into the end zone. And it was just almost like a trap and Northwestern fell for it every single kickoff. And And there was, there was was one return in the 10 yard line. There was one return. I think it was in the second half where we kicked it right where you were just describing and the, and the returner kind of took a step and then was like, you could see the, the, the wheels turning in his head where he was like, crap, I'm about to get hit like at the 12 Uh and and he got about going back. (laughs) And 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 his teammate was like, nope, nope, gotta run, let's go. <laughs> like, yeah. you gotta take this. You've already taken it too far. So, uh, I, I would say that the one, um, the one thing that that was really unlucky for Northwestern was that targeting call in the first half that I think very much changed the momentum of the game. Um, Northwestern's, uh, it, it was it was one of their um, defensive backs, uh, Jake McKee, who was called for it for targeting Duke uh, was was driving, was close to the end zone. Um, McGee hit one of our receivers, and then another one of the Northwestern defensive players got uh, an interception on the play. They called it back for targeting. McGee was um, was dismissed from the game per the rules. And uh, and Northwestern's coach, Pat Fitzgerald, said afterwards that that he, he was fine with the call. Um, you know, he understands the rules, and he supports that, and player safety, et cetera. Um, but that really turned the tide for Duke and, and gave them gave them the juice kind of to, to finish off that drive. Yeah, and it's worth noting that, that um, the interception had nothing to do with the targeting, I didn't think. No, no, it didn't. Yeah. No. Um, but it, it wasn't one of these cases. Sometimes there's a case where a team gets a turnover, they get an interception or something, and it gets called back for penalty, and you're like, yeah, they, you know, uh, like there's a holding or, or, or something like that. And I mean, like, it, bounced off his, you know, it bounced off his, uh, the dude's hands he turned yeah. and then got hit. Um, but yeah. the, it wasn't like he had the ball in his hands and he got popped. And that's why the ball like, flew in the air. It was basically I would say, off his hands. Yeah. It, it was a light helmet to helmet as far as, as far as targeting calls go. Yeah. Um, I think Duke got a little bit lucky on, on that. Um, it's more, it was a bang, bang play. Like right. it, it, it was the letter of law. Yes. Like, you know, it's, it's almost unfortunate. You know what I'm saying? Like that, you know, that was a good tackle. It's just that he was in the wrong he did it in the wrong time, you know what I mean? Yeah, in the, in exactly. the with the crown. So, yeah. Exactly. Although it's it's worth noting, um, later on in the in the first, I think it was in the first half, maybe in the third quarter, I forget. Uh, Duke uh, Duke had a big play um, called back for penalty when T.J. Roming had a huge punt return 
Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I thought he got it was in the first half. I thought he and got then injured. He got popped. Yeah, but yeah. but the, the, the play the got called field. back because 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 uh, of an illegal block on a Duke guy, and it, it was an illegal block that really didn't have much to do with springing Roming so he could get this big return. So yeah. uh, to some extent, each team had a huge momentum shifting kind of play that was called back for penalty. Um, so it, it balanced out, I thought, at least a little bit. Guys, I want to um, quickly point out to you what I thought. Uh, I, I, Sam, I think you're right. That, what, that play, the, the targeting penalty that negated the, the interception, was really big. I mean, there's no question that was a major, major turning point. Uh, there was another one that I identified while I was watching the game. Um, when Duke was leading 14-3, to three, so it was still very much a competitive contest. Um, uh, and and Sexton had the Saxon had the had the strip fumble recovery. Um, Duke had the ball uh, in Northwestern's territory, but we were only at the 37. We're we're not that's that's not field goal range for Duke. Um, and we had a third down and eight. And I, I I made a little note to myself and I said this is a really big play because we just gotten the strip, we just gotten the turnover, um, and we're in their territory and it's 14 to three. And, and you figure if we can get a touchdown here or at least even a field goal here, put ourselves up two touchdowns or more, um, it, it you know it, it changes the whole complexion. And we're, we're it's about 10 minutes, 11 minutes left in the second quarter when this happened. Um, and and I was like, we need to convert this third and eight. And we did. Uh, Daniel Jones passed Jonathan Lloyd for 12 yards. Um, we converted. And then a few plays later, we scored our touchdown to make it 21 to three. And the route was on. But I thought that was just, it was such a huge play, a huge moment. I wanted to point that one moment out, that third and eight that Jones completed that pass. I thought it was just a really, really big time. Um, a couple of the little things, because you guys covered so much. I just wanted to mention really quickly. Um, now playing the role of Brandon Connett, Quentin Harris. Uh, did did you guys know? I thought Quentin Harris did a nice job of running really hard when he came in as you know as the running quarterback, as sort of the See, wildcat quarterback position. So I I I I want to quibble a little bit with that because I think that and and for a little bit of extra background, right? A, a few years ago, Duke's during Duke's best season, the the twenty thirteen year, um, Brandon Connett was like. He wasn't even really the backup quarterback. He was just the like wild. He was a runner. Yeah. yeah, he was yeah. a runner. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 he did that very well. Um, but but he 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 just came in for those plays. And I think that on the one hand, I like that back in those days that that Duke was able to kind of change up the package and that and that opposing teams sort of had the game plan for multiple quarterbacks. But when you looked at it like the, the total playbook, it wasn't like the Kinect package was, was all that diverse. It was basically just, Oh, well, here comes Kinect. He's going to run the ball up the middle really hard. Um, and, and so I, I liked it because it was diverse. On the other hand, I don't know that it really confused defenses all that much. I like now, I, and, and I'm fine with Harris doing it. And, and if Cutcliffe likes it, that's fine. I like that we don't rely on it as much now as we did then. Um, I think it shows a bit of an evolution for the team, and it also shows how much more Cutcliffe trusts Daniel Jones because it wasn't even like he used it on every possession in the red zone the way that we used to do with Kinnett. Um Jones can can make those runs himself, and he can also, like I was saying before, turn those turn those plays into passes because um, he because he's always keeping his eyes downfield. So I like that we still have it. I like that it adds a wrinkle. I also like that we're trying to evolve away from it. 
um, because it because it shows a little bit, I think, of more maturity in the in the offensive play calling. Well, I think it is worth noting now that you've said that uh, the report we got on the DBR is that Cutcliffe really praised how much Quentin Harris, how hard Quentin Harris has been working in practice. And Cut says he wants to find more ways to get Quentin Harris into games, to get the ball in his hands. Um, I think you're right. I think he's going to be more than just a, um, just strictly a runner, the way Kanet was that that one season. Um, am I? I think Kanet had like 18 touchdowns that year, or something silly. Yeah, like something. That. Well, because we because we put him in on every on every yeah. play, like we didn't like if the we eight or ten. The 10 if we were inside the yeah. ten, he was taking it and he was scoring. Um, yeah, but exactly. but I, I I think folks, you know, as good as Daniel Jones looks, and and I mean, look, there are people who are. There are people who are talking NFL for Daniel Jones because he's got the he's got the right size, he's got the right build. He had really impressive accuracy um, uh, this week. Um, so there are people who are saying, you know, oh, does Daniel Daniel Jones maybe has a pro career ahead of him as a quarterback? Um, it's clear that uh, from what we're hearing that Cut really wants Quentin Harris to get more and more chances. So, uh, and I think that's great. Uh, I think it's really good for Duke. Um, if nothing else, it, it makes us feel comfortable about having a backup. Um, quarterback. Uh, and that leads me to, to one last thing I wanted to mention that bothered me a little bit. I mean, look, I, I don't want to be the guy questioning Coach Cutcliffe because the dude is clearly a genius and he has done incredible, incredible things with the Duke program. But we were leading by 28 points left in the game. And Daniel Jones, Sean Wilson, and TJ Roming, who are, who are our three best offensive players, our three offensive stars, were still in the game. We're still taking hits. And I was a little bit like, you know, hey, cut. We're we're up by twenty eight, and there's only five minutes left. How about you take your quarterback? I, I think there was a designed run at one point in there, a quarterback run on one of the plays with about five six minutes left. And I was like, really? We're gonna let Daniel Jones get hit one more time, leading by twenty eight? So I I just I kind of kind of wish, you know, let's get let other guys <laughs> get some chances in in a game that was clearly clearly decided. And that's it. That's what we got on uh, on Northwestern. It was a it was a great game, a lot of fun, um, and uh, we're we're about to move on um, to a preview of Baylor. But before we do that, I want to take a moment, um, and I want to talk about a guy named Paul Dufo, and uh, you would know him better as Ultra Runner on the DBR. Uh, that's his uh, folks who read the DBR a lot. You'll know who Ultra Runner is. Well, his name in real life is is Paul Dufo. And remember, guys, at the very beginning of the podcast, I said, remember these words, got to be a hero. Well, I'm about to tell you why. So, uh, folks, you remember we said last time on the podcast that we are uh, we're taking sponsors and, and uh, you know, that there, there's time and effort and and monetary expense that goes into us putting these podcasts together. And so we're going to try and recoup a little bit of that. Well, Paul stepped up almost immediately and he said, I want to sponsor one of the podcasts. And so he's sponsoring this podcast. And Paul, we cannot thank you enough. He's just a really great guy. He he said he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart and because he values our contributions to the Duke community. And uh, this was sort of funny. He said to me that he doesn't really get a chance to listen to the podcast very much because a lot of people listen in their cars. Um, but he uses his time in his car to to come up with ideas for books. And when he said that to me, I went, wait a second, you're an author? He said, yeah. And I said, I know how we're going to honor your sponsorship, Paul. So here is how we're honoring his sponsorship. Paul is an author, 
And his latest book uh, available on Amazon is called Got to Be a Hero. It is, uh, it's actually the start of a book series that he's doing that he's calling the Accidental Hero series. These are all young adult sci-fi fantasy kind of books. Um, uh, I'm not going to say they're like Twilight because I'm sure Paul would cringe if I said that, but I guess it's that sort of genre. Um, but I, I urge you folks, go out there. And Paul is thanking us for doing the podcast. The way you can thank Paul for thanking us is to check out Got to Be a Hero on Amazon. Um, it's available in Kindle. It's also available on paperback. Go out and support a fellow Dookie. Um, Paul, again, thanks very much for, for doing this for us. All right, it's time to move on to Baylor. Um, that's who Duke has this weekend. And uh, when Duke first signed this this series, this game against Baylor, I'm sure Duke fans were absolutely terrified because uh, for several years, Baylor was one of the top teams in college football in the Southwest Conference. They, they were, Baylor was contending to be in the college football playoff uh, a couple times over the past few years. And, and we figured, oh man, this is Duke stepping up with an opponent who uh, very well may beat the pants off of us. And yet things haven't worked out that way. <laughs> This year's Baylor team, and I'm not going to. We're not going to get into a discussion of the scandal and all the other horrible things that have happened. They've they've got a new coach and they've had a lot of problems. They had a lot of players leave the program. This year's Baylor team is terrible. Um, their opening week, they they played Liberty and they lost 48 to 45. I'm sorry, that's to Liberty, a a one double A opponent. Um, then last week they lost 17 to 10 to Texas, to Texas San Antonio. That is not regular Texas. UT San Antonio. They were a 12 and a half point favorite over UT San Antonio. They lost. They were a, get this, they were a 33 point favorite over Liberty and they lost. Duke comes into this game against Baylor as a 14 point favorite. And just for some perspective, the last time Duke was favored by more than 10 points over a BCS opponent, over a, you know, a major conference opponent was 2014. We played Wake and we were a 19 point favorite over Wake in 2014. So this is the biggest line against a BCS opponent since the 19-point line over Wake in 2014. And that 2014 Duke team won nine games. So Baylor coming in, this is a team in absolute disarray, and Duke couldn't be sailing any higher. Donald, lead it off for me. Tell me a little bit more about the Baylor Bears. So you alluded to a couple of things I was going to talk about. The fact that, one, they are they are terrible. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain why um, you, you alluded to a lot of it with the, with the off season, the off field issues that they've had as a, as a program and as a school. Uh, but it does not explain why you're losing to Liberty and UT San Antonio. Those are two teams that they should be beating. Um, and, and like you said, when we signed this uh, deal to play them a home and home, you know, way back, I guess it was four or five years ago. Everyone was like, I really hope that Duke is really good at this point because Baylor is going to be spectacular. And we are pretty good, uh, but I didn't think that it was going to be a 14-and-a-half-point uh, spread. The one thing that Baylor does that uh, that has been lacking lately uh, is their conversion on third downs. And I don't know if it's because they've played down to their opponent uh, or they have played lazy uh, I haven't watched a lot of them, um, but so far they they had four of twelve for third downs against Liberty. They were two of twelve for third downs against UT San Antonio. Um, that is a problem um, because if you're not getting uh, third down conversions, then your your offense is leaving the field, and 
uh, for good thing for Duke fans, our offense will be entering the field. So if our defense plays really well, like they did uh, Saturday against uh, Northwestern, Baylor's going to have a hard time uh, getting any points or generating any momentum or any offense. One thing that's also hurting them is that they may not be with their starting quarterback. Uh, a new Solomon um, is in uh, announced today, I guess, uh, by the team that he's in a concussion protocol after taking a hit last Saturday, um, which is really bad for them because not only is he their starting quarterback, he's also one of their best rushers. Uh, now, the, the lining in this is that Zach Smith, their backup, is a guy who has experience. He started a few games towards the end of last year, so he's familiar with the offense. He's not a guy that's, you know, you know, played one down uh, in college. He's a guy that has some experience. But when your leader's out that and, and you're down 0-2, you really have to dig deep uh, with a backup to try and, and, and do, uh, do a lot. So the three things that I will say that we need to do to win this game and to, you know, hopefully win it pretty handily. One, limit turnovers. Don't give them an opportunity to be in the game. This is a game that we should win. And it's funny saying this against for against a team called Baylor that Duke should be winning this game, but we should be. If we play well, we live in our turnovers, we should be winning this game. Two, get three and outs to frustrate their offense. Their offense has not been moving the ball very well, and their defense has been playing very, very poorly. Um, obviously, you know, when you're giving up 46 points to Liberty or 43 points to Liberty, you know, that is not a good outing. So getting three and outs will frustrate their offense and keep their defense on the field, keep them tired. That's when we can capitalize. And three, on offense, be patient and efficient. You know, what we did on Saturday against Northwestern is exactly how we should be playing against Baylor and against every team. Very efficient, very patient, great play calling, great execution. If we do all these things, we are going to put points on the board. And again, that momentum that I keep talking about, Baylor is a team that is on the down swing. They are, they have their backs to the wall. And they, in, in their minds, this is probably a must win game for them because after this, they're going to be starting to enter big 10 or big 12 play. And when you're playing against Oklahoma and, and, you know, TCU and some of these teams that they got to play, they don't want to enter that part of the conference of the conference schedule, having lost their first three games to teams that on paper, they should probably be beating. So if we limit turnovers, get three and outs on defense and on offense, be patient and efficient. That's what's going to win this ball game. Sam, you got anything on Baylor? Donald, that was an excellent, excellent preview. Yeah, I think that the the thing I want to see carry over from Northwestern to Baylor the most, and Donald touched on it, um, but just to emphasize, the the way that the Duke defense wasn't, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of fans and a lot of coaches talk about having the defense be like be aggressive and be attacking. Um I didn't think Duke needed to do that so much against Northwestern and with a new quarterback coming in, I don't think they're going to need to do that against Baylor. I think it's about, you know, meeting their assignments and, and playing, um, playing their positions as well as they can. They don't have to, the defense doesn't have to be running all over the field and creating havoc. I think that they're good enough to just, to just play straight up against Baylor and, and, and stop them at whatever they're trying to do. So uh, I want to see the defense keep doing that. I want to see guys like the linebackers making those, those stops at the line of scrimmage, um, making, making good plays and making smart plays. Because I, I think that, um, you know, w- with all that's going on at Baylor, um, straight up, Duke should just be able to beat them, which is not something we get to say very often. Um, and and which kind of leads me to sort of my next question that I wanted to pose to you two before we get away from football. Um, 
if if you don't mind. Um, we've talked so since we've been doing this show, um, Duke has kind of been in the in the sort of uh, peak era of, of football. I think we we started kind of after the the Chick Fil A Bowl season, but we've seen um, every year that we've been talking about Duke football on this show at least. Uh, Duke's had a winning record. They've gone to a bowl game until last year. Um, and, uh, and generally things have been pretty good for this program. Um, we've also made reference to the fact that it was only about 10 years ago that Duke was the, the, you know, king laughingstock of, of division one football so much so that, um, that they actually won a lawsuit on the grounds of being the very worst program in division one football when they, when they had a canceled series against Louisville. Um, and, and admittedly, um, you know, I, I came to Duke in, in 2007 as a freshman. And prior to that, I just wasn't much of a college football fan. Um, I grew up in Maryland. It's not exactly college football country. And um, so I don't really have the kind of the long time Duke football scars that, that you guys might have just from being a little older and for being Duke fans for longer. Um, so my question to you, and I had asked for the audience, I had asked them this earlier, so they had a, a little bit of time to think about it. How how long does the does the current level of success need to continue for Duke? You know, winning between four and like eight or nine games a year. How long does that need to continue before we stop pointing out how bad Duke was for so long? I think it's going to be it's going to take a lot longer than a few years. And and the reason why I say that is, you know, you were talking about the the you know the level of success that you've had since you. Uh, matriculated to Duke. When I got to Duke, uh, I did not see a, f- a football victory until the first game of my junior season. Um, and that is something that weighs on you. Like every single time when I, it, it also means that I don't take this success, this recent wave of success for granted because, uh, you know, growing up, I grew up a Michigan fan. So I grew up in a team that's winning nine, 10, 11 games a year competing for national championships. Coming to Duke, it was a very stark reality when, you know, you went through the first two years of your college, college career and not seeing a game where the points on the board was more than the opponent. Um, and, you know, even with some of these games, like over the years, we had a couple of seasons where we went uh, over um, after I left. But now I feel like it's, it, you have to get to a point where the people who remember the bad times are fewer than the people who remember it being just, you know, everything great. So that's going to take a while. I think it's going to take, you know, it's not going to take five years. It may take 10 before people say, hey, you know what? Duke is just a good team. It's a good program. But we're starting to see those those pieces now. When you talk about, uh, when you see on TV, they talk about coaching. The, Coach Cutcliffe is always coming up in coaching. Um, and, you know, you see more of our players in the NFL. That is another sign of a good program where people are, are taking uh, – giving us respect. Um, we're earning that respect right now. We have to keep it. And as we keep that, that's what's going to build momentum. The improvements to the program, the improvements to the stadium, the game day experience, all of that is going to add up down the line. It's not going to take uh, five years. It's going to take a lot longer than that. But maybe 10 years from now, we're looking back and you have a, you know, a, again, you may have a whole class uh, of, of students that say, hey, I went all four years and didn't see us win, you know, fewer than six games. Um, you know, last year was kind of a, you know, the end of a four-year run. Now we're starting the next run. And I think 
when that happens, when you get more of that, you know, level going and you, and you see all these pieces being put together and paying off, that's when you're going to start seeing that. But I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, which is why I'm never going to take this portion for granted because I remember the bad times. I remember the offers and I think a lot of other fans do too. So I think that is why um, we're going to keep being surprised and being, you know, quite shocked at, at things like 14 and a half point underdog or a 14 and a half point favorite Duke uh, on sports center. So I think that's my take on it. Jason, what's yours? Well, uh, so one thing I, I think about is, uh, you know, Duke wasn't terrible for that long. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really a eight-year period from 2000 to 2007, the Carl Franks and Ted Roof eras. Um, Airborne. <laughs> where, where, we, where, we only, where we never won more than two games, um, except once. There was one season. The, the, the year Carl Franks got fired and Ted Roof got hired, we won, like I think, five games. Um, but, but the rest of that era from 2000 to 2007 – um, we never won more than two games, and the two games we won were almost always uh, against, you know, lower class opponents, uh, division, you know, one double A or whatever you want to call them, um, uh, opponents who, who really, you know, of course, Duke has no business ever losing to those kind of teams. Um, so, uh, so it was an eight year period. Um, before that, we'd had good seasons, and we pretty consistently won at least three or four games. Um, and and if you go back to the years that I was at Duke, uh, I was at Duke when Steve Spurrier was our head coach, and um, we were incredibly fun to watch because we would put up you know forty plus points. Now we would usually give up fifty, but we put up, 50, and it was a lot of fun. And, and we had a couple of years in there where we were really good. Um, uh, and then you know Fred Goldsmith came along, and we we had some good years there as well. Um, uh, you know where we made bowl games and such. So so how long? Well. I I th- I think Donald sort of touched on it. Uh, it's it's when though that 2000 to 2007 era becomes so fa- fuzzy, so far in the past. Uh, you, you you know you go wait that was wow that was a long time ago and and that doesn't represent the program at all anymore. And and to me one sign of that is sort of when you're talking about recruiting, um, guys who Duke is currently recruiting for 2018. If you think about it, they would have been um, roughly, you know, like seven years old or so, seven, eight years old when, when Duke emerged from the Carl Franks and Ted Roof era and began to become relevant again. Um, uh, so if they're someone who was really into football, when they were first really into it, you know, maybe when they're eight, nine, ten years old, Duke is still sort of a laughing stock at that point. Um, because people are remembering the the 2000, 2007. So for me, it's probably another three or four years for Duke to get to the point where when we recruit kids, they have no memory whatsoever of Duke being a laughing stock of a program, of Duke being, you know, arguably the worst program in all of Division One, um, or or uh, of all the, you know, BCS conference, all the major conference teams. Uh, so, so I'd say give us about three more years or so to completely put it in the past. Um, you know, uh, uh, Sam, you asked the question. What, what do you think? What, what, where, where do we? When do we get to the point where we stop pointing out how incompetent we once were? I think that um, I, I, I like your measure of recruiting. Um, I think another measure, and and this would be personal to each of us, um, would be 
when's the last time you had a conversation with somebody about Duke football and heard the response, Duke has a football team? Um, right. Because absolutely. Because I, because I don't think it's happened to me like in the last two years, maybe something, probably something along those lines. And I would say that I would, I would need to get to a point where it hasn't happened for, I don't know, four five, six years before I'm like, okay, we we've, we've rid ourselves of that. Um, because like I said, I wasn't much of a college football fan, um, growing up. I probably didn't realize Duke had a football team, like until I was in high school and I was a Duke basketball fan. And like, I watched sports center every day as a kid. So, um, so that, I mean, that, and that's saying so. And now, obviously, I, I love Duke football. That's, you know, it's one of my very favorite teams and, and biggest passions. Um, but I, I think it's probably at the point where it's been a few years since you hear someone say, oh, do, do, does Duke even have a football team? Because, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that there are many programs in, you know, high-level Division One that that, that that line gets uttered about. And I think... Yeah, I think... I was going to say the respect level of that. Like, I get that question a lot still because, you know, especially from Miami people where they say, you're really rooting for Duke football over Miami football? Why? And now it's not a question that really is met with, I mean, I still get it a little bit, but I, you know, when the answer comes out, they're like, oh, well, Duke is pretty good. They've been pretty, they've been, you know, kicking our ass lately. Like, that sort of thing. When their team gets beat by us, that's when the respect level comes in. Another thing that I think is something that you, you uh, Jason talked about a little bit about how the kids that are on college now were like, you know, f- basically grew up as like babies throughout this little dead period that we had, that we'll call um, the, the Frank's roof era. Um, and they were kind of babies, so they don't really remember it. But I think what I think is going to start happening is you're going to have guys in, for example, you're going to have guys in Washington, D.C. who see Jamison Crowder on TV balling out and saying, oh, I want to – that's cool. He went to Duke? Oh, that's cool. If he's going to ball out in the NFL at Duke, then Duke is an option. Guys in Cincinnati see Vinny Ray as their defensive captain, has been a defensive captain for years now. Uh, are, they, are they looking up to these guys in the NFL? And the, when we get more of these guys in the NFL playing, you know, Jeremy Cash is now one of those guys that people say, oh, Jeremy Cash, where is he nowadays? Because that dude was a great player. And when you hear those lines and they say, you know, you're watching Sunday Night Football or Monday Night Football and you hear Vinny Ray, Duke, everyone waits to hear these guys say their names and say say what school they represent. And when you see more of these guys starting to represent Duke University – that respect level keeps going up and up and up. And that's why more of these recruits are wanting to come to Duke. That's why we're getting better recruits. That's why Coach, you know, Coach Cutcliffe is, re- is revered as having one of the better programs in college football, despite whatever record we may have. That sort of respect level, that is what is going to be needed as we continue forward to build this momentum and build this program. You know, one thing that I'll add to all of this um, I really think this season is tremendously important for Duke, uh, for Duke football. Um, we had the four-year run of making bowl games, and and look, we we won ten games in 2013. We won nine games in 2014. We went to the Chick Fil A and the Sun Bowl. Those are big-time bowls um, uh, that get lots of national attention. Uh, you know, we were we were 500 or better in the conference three years in a row. 
Um, last year was a step back. I mean, it wasn't disastrous by any stretch of the imagination. We were very competitive in the ACC, even though we only went one in seven. We had a lot of hard luck losses and, and games that, you know, just didn't quite go our way. We had the victory over Notre Dame early in the year um, that was, a, you know, real put you on the map kind of kind of win and, and hugely important for the program. But um, uh, but we only won four games. I think this year, um, I really, really hope, I really want us to get back to a bowl game, to get back to somewhere close to or above 500 um, in the ACC to, to show that this little blip we had in there wasn't just a little blip. It was what the David Cutcliffe Duke Blue Devils are going to be on a consistent basis. And that the blip was last year, was 2016, when we were only four and eight. Um, uh, so, so that's why I think our, our two and zero start beating Northwestern's a big deal. Beating Baylor will be a big deal, and then UNC right after it. Um, I, I absolutely, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I really want us to to have a big year this year, um, and and get to six, seven, eight wins or more uh, to really show that that Duke football continues to be a program of relevance. And one final thing that I'll note is, you know, you we were talking about, you know, Baylor this weekend being an important game in the psyche. Um, you know, one of the stats that I heard on SportsCenter, and this was on SportsCenter, I don't know why they were talking about it on SportsCenter. Maybe it was because they were talking about how Baylor was being terrible. But they said that if Duke wins on Saturday, they will have beaten two uh, Power 5 conference, non-conference teams for the first time since 1989. So that means wow. – and, and, and so here's the thing. You hear that stat. You hear the stat that we had uh, a couple weeks ago when we beat uh, NC Central, where we scored 60 points, the most points we'd scored since 1949. These droughts are being toppled. That's what we want to see. Because next time we score 61 points, they'll say, hey, that's the first time we've scored 60 points since 2017. You don't want to hear these 1949s, 19-whatevers. You want to hear... This is the first time they've done that in five games. This is the first time they've done that since opening week last season. That's what's going to help reverse the psyche of not, I mean, not us, but of everyone else who's sitting there saying, who is Duke football? And, you know, like even when Coach Cutcliffe back in 2013 saying, you're damn right we play football, that's not going to be something that's said by Duke anymore. It's going to be something that's said by the rest of the country. I love it. That's great. That's, that's 100% accurate and dead on target. Okay, guys, I got a question for you as we're, we're about to wrap up. We're, we, we spent a lot of time talking about football here. Hey, Sam, what's the name of this podcast? Duke Basketball Report. So I think maybe we should talk about basketball just for a brief moment. And the basketball news of the week um, that we have to discuss uh, here during the middle of football season um, is the news that uh, the NCAA has cleared Marvin Bagley III to, uh, to, to play basketball this season for the Duke Blue Devils. Uh, it, it may seem silly to even talk about the fact that, oh, they've cleared this player, um, it, you know, because I, I can't recall, there's never been a guy, uh, to my knowledge, that I can remember who came to Duke where there was a real question as to whether or not they would be cleared to play. Um, but there were some questions with Bagley because he had to reclassify. Um, and as a result, he had to accelerate his his uh, his high school learning, his high school degree and the such. Look, he only arrived on campus a very short time ago because of that. And and so there were some questions as to whether he might get cleared by the NCAA and be immediately eligible to play for Duke. 
There is now no question about that anymore. It was announced just a few days ago that um, that Bagley was cleared. Uh, Sam, I'll, I'll go to you first. Uh, any surprise here um, or, uh, you know, any comment at all about uh, uh, this stud, stud, stud recruit being cleared to play for the Blue Devils? I think that there is probably justifiably so some chatter about, you know, how Duke is kind of turning into Kentucky when it comes to recruiting and all the one and done guys and and how do they get away with everything and nobody else does. And, you know, people, people can speculate on that sort of thing. And, and, and as we've said before, we don't really have like deep insight into, into how the program operates. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me that Bagley got eligible. I don't, think that coach k is is going to be recruiting guys like in the brandon jennings situations where you're not sure if they're going to make it i mean they it it seems like from reading about it that they've been on this track for a few months they've had a plan in place and you know even even though the ncaa may not have formally been looking at this until a couple weeks ago i i wouldn't be surprised if duke had been communicating with them with the appropriate people at the clearinghouse and with, with the with the Duke uh, compliance office and all that to kind of, you know, get the situation going. Um, so uh, I'm not surprised that he's eligible. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's going to be really cool to see him playing with, um, you know, with guys like Allen and Duvall and and Marquise Bolden. Um, and and on that subject, um, I. I I would shed a tear for Marquise Bolden because if if the rumors were true that he was thinking of transferring and kind of waffled and then ultimately ended up deciding to stay, um, man, what a bummer! If uh, if this is if this is ultimately the thing that that ends him up on the bench, and I don't think we know yet exactly what the what the starting lineup's going to look like, um, and I think Bagley's probably of the of the three major bigs of. of of him and Bolden and Wendell Carter. I think that Bagley's the only one that definitely starts. Um, and, and you could talk me into Bolden or Carter being the other big that starts for Duke this year. Donald, you got anything on this? I, I agree with everything Sam just said. Uh, you know, it's, it's great for Duke basketball. It's great for Marvin Bagley. Um, and I like the, I like the fact it was done early. You know, we see a lot of these happen uh, every year. Uh, n- most notably, I, I think it was Enos Cantor who, like they literally the day before the week before the season started back when he was supposed to be a freshman, they said, Nope, not eligible. Um, so I like that. It, it, I, I agree with Sam where I think that they probably had all their ducks in a row so that when he committed, the process began and it was very smooth. Um, and they had all the paperwork and everything needed uh, to get him through early and not draw it out where, you know, coach K and, and the coaching staff has to make plans about, do we prepare for him? Do we prepare without him? Now he can fully integrate with the team. It seems like, you know, from the videos on uh, Duke Blue Planet that he's doing that very, very well already. And uh, this is just one check mark. Uh, now we have a full team. Now our team's set. And now we get to wait with anticipation and see what they can do. So um, Sam had started to say uh, there's probably going to be a little bit of grumbling about Duke becoming a one-and-done factory, so to speak. I thought he was going to say what I'm going to bring up, which is, there's probably, as a result of the Marvin Bagley thing, there's probably more than a little bit of grumbling from other schools, other fans around the country that Duke gets away with everything. That's what they're going to say. Oh yeah, um, that, that that's it. I and 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 I've seen that and heard that and read that. So yeah, I, I mean, 
the the Duke look, we we all know the Duke hate is real, um, and uh, and and it's irrational. Um, but I got to tell you, uh, you brought up Donald brought up Enos Cantor. I, I want to if I was a Kansas fan, I'd be so angry right now that Duke got that Duke did this because just last year, Kansas had Chick Diallo, who is a stud recruit, big time player, and he couldn't get cleared by the NCAA eligibility folks. Um, and he missed like the first five games of the year and he never had the season they expected because he he spent he missed so much early season time. Um, waiting to get cleared, waiting to get eligible. Um, and now this year, right now, Kansas thought they had a big-time recruit, top 10 player, a kid named Mitchell Robinson, who went to Western Kentucky. He committed to Western Kentucky, and then he realized, wait a second, I'm such a big-time recruit, I should go someplace else. And he went to Kansas. But unfortunately, he'd taken a couple summer school classes at Western Kentucky. And so the NCAA said, no, 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 you're not. Kansas, you're a transfer. And so now he's gone back to Western Kentucky. And actually, he may just skip college altogether and just go directly to the draft next year. But in any event, like if you're a Kansas fan, you've had two stud top 10 recruits who you thought were going to be game changers for you in the past two years. And the NCAA eligibility folks have said, no, 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 they're not playing for you. Um, and Kentucky had to do it with Enos Cantor. And Enos Cantor went on. Enos Cantor is a very good NBA player. You cannot tell me if you add Enos Cantor to that Kentucky team a few years ago, it doesn't give them a much, much better chance at winning a national title. So those fans, Kansas, Kentucky fans, who, who you know look at Duke with jealousy and with anger and contempt all the time, they got to be looking at the Blue Devils right now and just going, God, you guys got away with it again. They, they and, and to some extent, I kind of love it. I think it's hysterical. Um, you know, folks who say Duke gets all the calls and all this. We've talked about this in the podcast before. I love it. The notion that Duke gets all the calls. Yes, please. I want us to get all the calls. I'd love to think that it's actually eight on five out there because we got the refs on our side. Let's make it nine on five because we got the NCAA on our side. It's because we do things right. It's because we we dot our I's, we cross our T's, and Duke makes sure before anything happens bad that nothing bad will happen. Uh, and that that goes to the guy at the top that goes to coach K he has put together an incredible organization of people who know the rules they know how to play right by the rules they know how to make sure that things go the way they want it to and i'm certain they knew that they were going to get Marvin Bagley the 3rd eligible well before uh he announced that he was reclassifying um and and props to them and i actually think you may start to see other schools start to catch on that maybe Duke has got has has figured something out that with the top 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 recruits with the guys who really do, you know are are really eligible or good enough to reclassify this notion of ushering them through the reclassification process and I firmly believe that Duke did that with Bagley I think Duke Duke spoke to him about reclassifying talked to him about how it was going to happen and Duke helped make that process happen smoothly I think that you may start to see more and more guys reclassifying, moving up a, a class, um, and having the school help them with that process. Uh, because here, and I think other schools will recognize that that's a way to make sure you get a guy. And and the next name to talk about in that regard is R.J. Barrett, um, who who is the number one recruit in the class of 2018. Duke is very hot after him. He was originally in the class of 2019, and he has also reclassified very recently. Now, it's not a late reclassification like Bagley. It's a very early reclassification. It's the start of his senior year. But uh, you'll be hearing a lot more about R.J. Barrett, you know, down the line. 
And, um, I, you know, I think this is going to be a little bit of a trend of the very, very top players in the class trying to see if they can get to the NBA faster by getting to college faster and being done with high school faster. All right, so we're on recruiting, and and I just mentioned a guy in the class of 2018. There's one other player in the class of 2018 um, who has something interesting going on with Duke, uh, and, and I'm going to let Donald tell you all about that. Donald, give us a little recruiting update. All right, well, the number two, the number one player in the class, uh, R.J. Barrett, you know, you were talking about him. He makes his official visit this weekend, but the number two player in the class is one that has been turning heads the last couple of days with a couple of comments that he made, uh, giving high praise to Duke. I love it. Uh, Zion Williamson, if you have watched YouTube in the last year and a half, maybe two years, you have heard of this guy because his dunks uh, have dominated basketball, uh, Twitter, basketball, internet for a long time. This dude is the real deal. Um, and he said in comments uh, to a magazine a couple days ago, uh, he had high praise for Duke and how uh, he had an in-home visit with uh, Coach K. And Coach K was kind of talking about how he wanted to use him in an offensive role uh, if he came to Duke next year. Now, he mentioned uh, a couple of pieces that he uh, was trying to get first off. He kind of mentioned his plan of recruiting, and he mentioned the two guys in the class that have already committed, Cameron Reddish and Trey Jones. But what he also considered is that Coach K indicated he would have him in an offensive role similar to what LeBron James did in the 2012 Olympics. Now, if you guys watched the 2012 Olympics, you know that LeBron James was featured as the star. It was an offense geared around him to show the world that we had the best player in the world. Um, and that was LeBron James. So, uh, and it worked to perfection. You know, we ended up winning the gold medal. This is the kind of offense that Zion Williamson is saying that Coach K would feature him in, um, in an offense next year. Now, what does this mean? Is Duke moving up his list? This is a guy that, uh, honestly, most people didn't think had you know, had Duke anywhere near the top of his list, but he has two recruiting visits currently scheduled. That's it. He canceled an in-home visit with Kentucky uh, last week because of Hurricane Irma. There's two on his schedule. One is UCLA and the other is Duke for countdown to craziness next month. So I think this is piquing a lot of interest because as you said, Jason, RJ Barrett, number one player in the class, Zion Williamson, number two player in the class, Cameron Reddish, number three player in the class, are all these guys going to be at Durham next year? This is what's really interesting and kind of amazing that the top three players in a class could all be going to the same school. Uh, and I think is really going to make for an interesting couple of months uh, of recruiting. Especially given that they're all, it's not like, it's not like Duke's got, you know, one or two of these very top guys and that the other guys are like waiting around for the spring to see who commits or, or who goes or whatever. Um, it, it sounds like with these early, I mean, these, these visits are all happening either before the season starts or like in the preseason um, and, and before the fall signing period. So it's reasonable to say that Duke's going to get, you know, a, a number of these very top guys, even before the season starts, even in that early period, like they did a couple of years ago with, with Jolly Okafor and Tyus Jones, who were like, I think they were the last, two guys to commit like they like Grayson Allen and Justice Winslow had already committed or were committing around the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, Allen was way earlier, but, um, but getting, getting those guys that were so talented and so early in the year where Duke Duke fans and, and the Duke staff could look forward to them all year. And, and, and they were pretty much done recruiting um, in November. 
Well, and it's it's not just the top three guys in the class that um, that that were uh, that that look like they're you know coming to Duke. Uh, a lot of people think that look like they're or, you know could be coming to Duke. Uh, we already have Trey Jones, who's number six in the class, um, and we're we're very very high on the list. And most people think we're the favorite for the number nine player in the class, Darius Garland. Um, it is. Uh, it could be a absurd, ridiculous recruiting haul for Duke in the class of 2018. You're talking about five of the top 10 players in the class. Uh, it's uh, it's almost unfathomable. Um, and yet this is the kind of recruiting role that Duke is on right now um, that we have been on for the past couple of years. And, and it just continues to happen. It's it's really impressive, and and you know I spoke a moment ago. I think it's the attention to detail by the staff. They they um uh, you know they they really know how to break this stuff down. They they know um which recruits they want. They zero in and they uh, you know they they get on those guys with laser like focus. And those guys understand exactly what their role will be at Duke. Um and Donald, I, I love that you pointed out that that quote that Zion Williamson had where coach K had described to him how he would use Zion if Zion comes to Duke and how coach K said hey look um Cameron Reddish and T- Trey Jones they were part of my plan and you are another piece of that plan and the, the all these dominoes are happening as i saw them happening this is the way i wanted it to happen and here's how i'm going to use you and here's what we're going to do with you i mean when you're talking about the greatest coach of all time giving you that kind of a pitch. How do you say no? A- and the answer is most kids don't. They say yes. I'll take it. And, here, and here's a question. I, I know we're going to wrap up very, very soon, but here's a, a question I'm thinking of as we're kind of going through this. So in the NBA, we had it. We had an era where, you know, you had one team, one superstar, maybe two superstars, but that's about it. Then we had the super team era, which is right now where teams are trying, players are trying to get together with other great players to try and win, uh, win a championship. And they're not, uh, you know, the team, one team, one star is, is long gone. Most teams want to have two, three, even four, five, six stars in, in the case of Cleveland, Boston, and, and Golden State. With college, that's always been, you know, maybe one, maybe two, but for the most part, most of the top 10, top 15 recruits don't want to go to the same school as these other guys because they kind of see them as competition. And even, you know, in the case of like RJ Barrett and uh, Cameron Reddish, they play the same position uh, for the most part. They have different games, but I think they play, you know, a similar style of basketball. Are we starting to see a point where now, I mean, we've had some package deals, but now if this happens, is this the start of an era where the top players are trying to play with each other and not against each other? So Donald, I would argue that that has started already, and I think it started in college basketball in 2014, the class of 2014. That's when Jaleel Okafor and Tyus Jones were a package deal. They they were absolutely very clear that they were going to play at the same school, um, and uh, Jaleel was the number one player in the class. Tyus was top five or so in the class, and uh, you know it was a point guard and a center, and they said. We're playing together, um, and and they came to do it together. They committed at the same time, um, and uh, I I think the success of, of Duke's class that year, um, you know, especially when you when you add in Justice Winslow um, uh, and Grayson Allen, but really, you know, Winslow was the other 
the other superstar uh, in that class that Duke landed. Um, I, I think we've begun to see more and more of guys starting to want to play together um, and, uh, you know, and, and become uh, form a super team on their own. Um, and, and I certainly think, um, you know, last year when you had Tatum and Giles, now it didn't work out as well as Duke would have liked, but um, Jason Tatum and Harry Giles had talked about wanting to play together. Um, and, and, it, and, and they committed very close to each other. It was only a couple of weeks apart, um, uh, you know, in their, in their commitment. Um, again, injuries robbed them of what they could have been, I think. Uh, but, but I, I think you're, you're seeing this, you're going to see more and more of it. Um, and, uh, I think it's good for Duke because I think Duke is a, a very clear, um, destination for these guys if they want to, you know, put themselves together as a package and and come dominate college basketball for for a year. Um, in fact, I think there's sort of a limited number of schools that that um, a player like that would even consider. It's really it's Duke, it's Kentucky, um, Kansas, and Arizona, maybe UCLA, and the, those are the schools um, that that are you know competing for these top top products and who are getting multiples of these top guys. All right, guys. So with that, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. We are all done with this edition of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We should have almost called it the Duke Football Report podcast because we've spent so much time on football. Duke has Baylor coming up this weekend, and then after that, we have UNC. And believe me, stay tuned to this channel. We will bring you a preview of the UNC game next week. But for now, for Donald and for Sam, I am Jason. This is the DBR podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back at you in a couple of days. And Duke Band, take us home.